Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 26, More Than a Feeling. Today I'm interviewing Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason on the importance of thinking when it comes to the Christian faith. But first, there may be many of you listening who haven't listened before or have just recently begun listening after Greg let me plug my show uh, a few days ago on Stand to Reason. To you new listeners, I just want to say thanks so much for giving up a portion of your time today to listen along. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview and that you'll consider listening to other episodes as well. I thought I'd also explain my show a little bit to catch you up to speed. I'm just an average Joe in the pews, uneducated, inexperienced. Uh, I was an atheist before being born again about 10 years ago almost. Um, and, and But soon after coming to Christ, I developed a passion for theology and for apologetics, and I quickly realized the importance of testing ideas and teachings in light of the objective and errant Word of God. Unfortunately, it seems to me that too few Christians take theology and apologetics seriously. And as a result, there's a richness and depth to the Bible that is missed by many evangelicals today, and they're left, they're left at risk of being led astray into serious error and into false gospels in which the Jesus Christ of the Bible isn't to be found. So that's what my show is about, one average Joe sharing his passion for theology and apologetics with other average Joes in the hope that they too will catch the infection, as you'll hear Greg put it in the interview. My show's logo, which you might be looking at right now on your computer or Zune or other music player, is the Greek letter alpha, which begins the Greek word from which we get the word apologetics, inside the Greek letter theos, which begins the Greek word from which we get the word theology. And it's these two words, theology and apologetics, which I've awkwardly combined to form the title of my show, The Apologetics. Yes, I'm aware it's awkward, it's difficult to pronounce, doesn't really roll off the tongue very well. <laughs> uh, in fact, after I interviewed my friend Dee Dee Warren, she replayed the interview in her show, The Preterist Podcast, and here you can listen to what happened when she tried to pronounce it. First, this short introduction and some news items, followed by two segments of one hour each of my appearance on Chris Date's Theoplot... This episode will be... First, the short introduction and news section, followed by two segments of one hour each of my appearance on Chris Date's, uh... Now, many of my shows as of late have been interviews of guests on particular topics. Uh, and in fact, I've got three more coming up after this one. Steve Hamm from Answers in Genesis to talk about creation and the authority of scripture. Jim Wallace from Please Convince Me on the topic of the reliability of the Gospels as eyewitness accounts, and Steve Abendroth of No Compromise Radio on the topic of the gift of tongues. But that's not the case with all my shows. Many of them are ones in which I attempt to teach what I think the scriptures teach on various issues. And after this upcoming string of interviews, I'll return to that format for at least a couple of shows. Now, I open each episode with a few minutes of introduction and monologue, as I'm doing now. Uh, and then I play a short promo for a resource I think you'll find edifying, like this one. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. I've got a growing rotation of about 10 shows I promote. And if you host a show or listen to a show that you think my listeners and I would find edifying, let me know about it, and I'll give it a listen and we'll promote it in my show if I like what I hear. My friend Glenn Peoples' show, Say Hello to My Little Friend, is excellent, and I highly recommend it. He just did a review of the popular but <laughs> vapid uh, internet movie Zeitgeist, and I think you'll find his critique very helpful. I'll include a link in my show notes, which you can find for every episode at the homepage of my podcast. And then finally, after I've finished with my introduction and have played a promo, I transition into the topic of the show by playing a portion of the song whose title serves as the title of the episode, like this.
It's my great privilege and honor to be joined today by Greg Kokel, founder and president of Stand to Reason, to discuss the importance of thinking when it comes to the Christian faith. Thanks so much for joining me today, Greg. Yeah, it's great to talk with you, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. First things first, let me start by congratulating you on 21 years on the air. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's right. We're just coming up on our, our on our anniversary, and gosh, it doesn't, you know, it seems like a long time now, 21 years, but I know that the years have really passed fast. It doesn't seem like, you know, two decades, so it's it's amazing. I appreciate uh, uh, the accolades there. Yeah, definitely. Um you know, before we get started, uh, I just wanted to say that in contrast with you and your radio show, I'm an uneducated, inexperienced average Joe, and my show is new and small. Uh, I'm just a $1 apologist, if that, trying to bloom where I'm planted. Mm. And so I just want to say how much I appreciate that you would take time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Oh, it's great. I'm glad to do so. And I know you call the show, and we've had talks on, on our, our own broadcast together, so I, I'm glad to make a contribution to your crew. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have you on the other side of the microphone. Um so the way I like to begin interviews on my show is by getting to know my guest a little better by asking them for their testimony. Uh, your bio at STR, it says, Greg started out thinking he was too smart <laughs> to become a Christian. Um, tell us about your background and what led you to placing your faith in Christ. Yeah, I wasn't uh, actually raised as a Christian in the way we understand it now. Um, I was raised in a denomination. I, I was raised Roman Catholic, actually, and for us what that meant is uh, going to church on Sunday and holy days of obligation and saying a certain grace at prayer at at, uh, at, at meals and and uh, uh, you know we kind of went through the motions and and the one thing that showed me that I wasn't really serious about this nor anyone else in our family that is um, deeply profoundly serious we, we we took it serious as uh, as part of our culture but when I turned seventeen years old and uh, started thinking for myself I I realized it and believe it. And that's true of everybody else in our family. And, uh, it, uh once the kids grew up. So it was true, it was clear there was no deep conviction there. And, and this happened to be in 1967. And so this is the time when the counterculture was happening, Chris, and, and everybody was, uh, trying to, looking at life in a, a different way, especially young people. A lot of new ideas were uh, being imported from the East spiritually. Mm. Uh, we had the whole uh, British invasion of music, the Beatles et al. Uh, you, you had a, a complete overhaul in the, the status quo here in this country. And to be honest, it was an exciting time uh, to be a young person because I had thrown off the shackles of my uh, prior religion. Uh, I was a young man kind of feeling my oats and wanting to explore my world, and the rules were changing radically in my favor. And so that was really great. I mean, things were opening up sexually. Uh, there was, like, a freedom of expression in a lot of other ways. There was an anti-war movement. There was all of this stuff that was going on that was vigorous and uh, and exciting. And so I embraced that. And I, at first, I experienced a tremendous sense of, uh, uh, I would say, uh, liberty and freedom. Uh, in, in my view at the time, liberty was doing your own thing, which was one of the slogans of the, the time. I, I don't know how old you are, Chris, but uh, uh, do your own thing was was uh, very hip back then. I mean, as a phrase, there was a song that said uh, whose main line was live for today. Uh, another slogan, if it feels good, do it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you, you can see where this is going. It's it's a move towards aggressive um, uh, sensuality and aggressive self-centeredness and narcissism, and which is very appealing to teenagers. Sure. And so, uh, when I um, uh, when I began to embrace this, I I felt a lot of freedom. I I didn't have my spiritual thing worked out. I. I was very generalized at that time, you know. I, I thought, well, maybe there's a God, maybe not. Uh, it doesn't make that much difference. Uh, truth is relative anyway. Everybody has their own ideas about things. Um, what what's, what's right for one person is not right for another person. And, of course, the value for that is that I didn't have to kind of uh, step up to the plate of any particular morality. I could do whatever I wanted to. Right. And it was a great payoff for that, you know. And, and that was my interest at the time. So... Um, uh, if, if God did exist, he was maybe some spiritual force somewhere, um, Star Wars-like. And um, in any event, this was, this was the deal. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I was able to experience a sense of, uh, of, of real freedom 
I should say, a real sense of freedom, but it wasn't real freedom. Yeah. Because uh, freedom isn't doing your own thing. Freedom is when you live the way you're intended to live, when you are function the way you were made to function. Yeah. And um, uh, so, so uh, pretty soon, you know, it started coming back on me, as it does in most cases. Um, in in my case, what ended up happening was um, I lost uh, I lost my girlfriend after six years. My high school sweetheart, and then into college, she came to California. I chased her out here, which is how I got to California. <laughs> I chased this gal out here. And uh, that whole relationship just disintegrated. And what it did, it didn't push me to Christ, first off. What it did was uh, it, it made me look more realistically at my, my, my philosophies and worldview. And what did I have uh, as a resource now during this difficult time in my life? Well, my philosophy and worldview told me the truth was relative, that there was no God, that the universe was empty to our most um, uh, our most uh, important questions, and in, 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 in fact, the answers to those questions was Neil. You know, there's nothing out there but molecules clashing in the universe, and and when 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 everything is going rosy, that doesn't matter. But when things get tough, <laughs> uh, then the stark reality is that uh, that there there is no one who cares. There is no one who can help you. There is no meaning ultimately to one's own suffering. Right. And uh, this was a wake-up call for me. And uh, I, I, I didn't uh, turn to Christ directly after that, uh, but it, it just got my attention in a big way. Uh, what uh, was happening on the home front? Uh, I have four brothers and sisters, and my the middle boy, my my, uh, there's, my I have an older sister myself, then Mark, and then uh, another brother, Dave. And then Bonnie, and we're all two years apart, except my older sister's just a year older. So we're really, uh, it's a tight pattern, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. shot pattern. Uh, tough on my folks because they had all these kids right away, but, uh, and we were kind of a wild bunch. But Mark had become a Christian, um, in Chicago where I grew up. I was in Michigan and then moved to California. And, uh, he was the jock of the family, the most accomplished athlete. All the boys were in athletics, but he was the star. And so I, I'm the only one who went to college. And so I thought, well, I'm too smart for what he has. You know, that's good for him. Um, but uh, I don't need that kind of thing. Well, uh, through a set of circumstances, he ended up on the West Coast in, in Los Angeles, where I was now at. And so we had a chance to spend more time together. And and to kind of bring this testimony to uh, a rapid close here, it was that conjunction of being in California, being with my brother Mark, and facing all of these hard realities of my life, that really was the thing that God used to get me to think more clearly about the challenge and demand that he made in my life. I was at UCLA at the time, and um, and I, I, it wasn't like there was any particular intellectual argument, Chris, that really made a difference in mm. my life. It, the biggest difference was Mark, um, and, and he was steady and persistent and consistent, and his in his communication to me and his challenge to me. He wasn't mean or nasty, but he had genuine concern for me. It was obvious. And so uh, September 28th, 1973, he had come uh, to Santa Monica from Long Beach to, to visit me in, in my apartment. And, and uh, that Friday night, I bowed my head and I asked Christ to take control of my life. And uh, things began to happen right after that, uh, very radically. And one of the biggest things that that God orchestrated actually was that I got connected within four months, uh, within actually two months, with a significant group of very serious Christians in Westwood Village, where UCLA is at. I actually moved into an old fraternity house there, um, where all these Christians had kind of gathered for a, a kind of like a Jesus, a Jesus person uh, training school of sorts. It's <laughs> called the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse. Uh, very trendy for the, uh, very consistent with the trend of the times, I guess, uh, right next to the campus there. But I, for two and a half years, I lived there. I got, uh, with about a hundred other students, I got tremendous training and I got discipled. And that's what really launched me in the trajectory that I'm in right now, which, uh, is also the place, uh, where I began to get my feet kind of, uh, set on solid ground, to coin a phrase, um, in the area of Christian defenses and Christian apologetics and Christian worldview thinking. Hmm. Uh, prior to that, I, I, be, I guess I navigated, or rather uh, gravitated to that naturally because 
just my own personality and the way that God had gifted me, uh, I started doing apologetics as I was talking to people, even though I didn't know what it was. I didn't know a word for it existed. But then as I began to get trained in some of this, and I read C.S. Lewis, and I read Francis Schaeffer especially, um, it really began to, um, to to deepen my interest in these things. And then that's the, that's the kind of uh, platform from which the Lord took me uh, these now 30, what's 37 years hence, yeah. um, which has eventuated in Stand to Reason. Yeah. Well, and that was, that leads to my next question, which was, uh, you know, you, I mentioned that you've been on the air for 21 years, but I'm assuming the ministry's been around longer. Tell us about how and why, you know, the circumstances uh, surrounding the beginning of Stand to Reason and what its mission is. Yeah, actually, it's just the opposite. I was on the air first, and then the organization oh. started afterwards. Yeah, and, and that's kind of an, a curious thing, Chris, about the way God works. And if I, if you could allow me to take just a small, uh, uh, little, um, um, you know, uh, rabbit trail here. Sure. Um, uh, my view of, of, in a sense, calling and. Uh, and, and ministry and the Lord's leading and stuff is very different from the conventional view. You, listen, you probably listened to me long enough to know this. <laughs> but I, I think folks have a misunderstanding about the meaning of terms like led by the Spirit and calling and the like. And uh, it's a bit of a mystery because if you just go back to the passages where these are described, you find something entirely different than what people understand. Hmm. But there is this strong cultural move. Uh, a, 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 um, a, a, a cultural force, a, a um, um, should we say, a, um, uh, it's like a received tradition that if you want to know what to do with your life or any major decisions, you pray and God makes the decision and then he leads you in some way to this enterprise. And if you were, uh, if the enterprise ha- has to do with ministry, then we, we may use the word calling to describe it. And so people will say, well, I'm called to this ministry or called to that ministry. And sometimes the question might be asked, though you didn't put it this way, thankfully. <laughs> uh, how, how, describe your call to start the, the ministry stand to reason. My conviction from many, almost 30 years ago now, uh, in studying the Bible is that God doesn't distribute ministry through calling. Uh, if you look up the word call, kaleo in the Greek, it just doesn't, that's not how it's used. God distributes ministry through gifting. Hmm. And uh, and it's not a mystical process. It's you look at your life and you look at the things that God has gifted you to do, and then you and then you go and, and you try to be fruitful in the in, with the opportunities you've been given, and with the gifts that you've been given. And you, it doesn't have to be introspective the way it is for many people. Hmm. Uh, that's a whole other story. I won't go into theology on it. People can find stuff on our website regarding decision making if they'd like to pursue that further. Sure. But, Part of this picture, though, is a deep confidence, confidence in the sovereignty of God, yeah. and that is that we don't know, we don't need to hear messages from God and get leadings and all that other stuff for us to to fulfill His purposes, His His larger designs, and um, and so when I look back now, now this brings me back to the main question, but that is a backdrop. Um, when I look back at my past, I see all of these things that God sovereignly put in place, Chris, all of these people that I, I ran into, relationships that I made willy-nilly, if you will, uh, things that just seem to happen, that now, as I look back, I can see the place that they fit in the larger plan of what God was sovereignly doing in my life, bringing me to this point uh, where I'm at right now, uh, in work with standard reason and a whole other uh, uh, other areas of my life, I, I I learned about the light and powerhouse, for example, this place that I ended up living at, because I uh, because before I was a Christian, I was on a bus and I was I was talking with a girl that I was hitting on, <laughs> who was who was reading a Bible and she was a Christian and her, her name was Adrian Thatcher. I, I'd never seen her since that day, but she told me about this place that I remembered two or three months later after I had talked with her. And I'd become a Christian, and I went to that house, and that's how I started my Christian training hmm. and that thing. I ended up being on radio because I got a phone call from somebody that said, uh, asked me if I, they could put my name in to a local secular station in order to uh, have a to, to, to be a guest on a secular show about religion. It's called Religion on the Line. And I said, sure, why not? I, you know, I was eating a piece of pizza watching a movie at my house. And, <laughs> and so a couple of days later, I get a call from uh, Religion and Media, and they, and they put me, for the first time almost ever that I've been on radio, on a show with Dennis Prager. 
Wow. And uh, that was over 20 years ago. Now, Dennis is a nationally known syndicated talk show host. And we're still friends after all these years. And it was going back and forth in that show that got me my feet wet in radio. And then I, when I was asked out of the blue again to test for a weekend show at uh, KBRT here in Southern California, then I, I said, sure, why not? It's an, I was already working at a church as a, as a, uh, as a Christian worker, as a, as a pastor, as a teaching pastor for a large church here in Southern California. Pope Chapel in Hermosa Beach, and uh, and but this was weekend work, and I was single and footloose and fancy free. I had the time, so I tested for it. I got the job, and that was twenty, almost twenty one years ago. Um, and it wasn't until four years later that things came together in the way they did that uh, that in which I started stand to reason. Okay, but when I was going to start an organization, and this is why it makes a lot of sense to me the way it happened, rather than the way most people think it would happen. Mm -hmm. You suggested start the organization, get the radio show. Is because um, I started here in Southern California in a local show. It's a big market, you know, as it turns out. But it was a Christian market, so smaller than most. It gave me a start in a good spot. And four years later, I had interviewed every major Christian thinker in the country on the radio. Right. So I had collegial relationships with a lot of these people, um, and and that and that also the name recognition that came from the, that radio show over that four years of building an audience gave me a powerful launching pad, a foundation from which to start the organization. Yeah. So I didn't start with with no in a sense followers or with no recognition. I started with a lot. I started with a bang. Yeah. With stand to reason, and and it's been banging every since, ever since. Right. And so I see that I didn't plan it that way. God did. And so I look back and I can see how God has worked now to lay things into place. I don't say, "Gee, I discovered God's will." No, I can. I what I say is, I tried to use my gifts and opportunities the best that I could. I was trying to bloom where I'm planted, where yeah. I was planted. And and I would able to watch then God sovereignly move things forward, and yeah. so that's that's really how we got we got started uh, in this. I was trying to take those opportunities that were presented to me, the gifts that I seemed to have, that is the ways I was operating in the body of Christ that uh, seemed to bear fruit, and also the the the, the native capabilities and interests. That I had. I don't rule that those out. I don't think those are fleshly, you know, right. because it's what I want to do. I think God works through our wants most of the time. And so all of those things just came together. And, and uh, then in 1970, uh, make that 1992, 92, 93, let me think for a second, 93, <laughs> Melinda, the enforcer, knows all the dates really well. I, uh, <laughs> Uh, I started losing track of them here now 20 years later, but it was, it was May of 1993 that where we had a big a meeting at Hope Chapel with about 50 of other people who are close friends of mine who are following what I've been doing on the radio, and I basically asked their opinion about this new idea that I had developed and, and, and because I had another Christian brother push me really hard to be a better steward of the gifts that I have. He says, you should get out of pastoring. It's too much distraction. You should do this thing that you do best. You should focus. And, of course, that's the concept of gifting. Right. Everybody, you know, First Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, everybody has a gift that gives them some specialty in the body of Christ. And even though there's a number of things we're supposed to do, we are supposed to specialize in our specialty. Yeah. And that's really the spirit behind Stand to Reason in terms of my personal involvement. Um, in a broader sense, I looked around the, the, the Christian world, and there were a couple of things that concerned me, that bothered me, that I, I wanted to be able to speak to. And one of them was that what I saw to be the shallowness of thinking in Christianity, a theological shallowness, and, and the shallowness in terms of defending one's faith. Um, and, and, and instead of depth, where there could, should be depth and could be depth, because we have such a great tradition as, as uh, in Christianity of good thinkers, um, there was shrillness and hostility and, and uh, you know, people banging heads. Uh, D-Day, not diplomacy. Yeah. And so part of Sandra Reason was to reverse that trend, to try to help Christians to think more carefully about their convictions and then train them to be able to engage in a way that looked more like diplomacy and not D-Day. Yeah. And that's really the heart of Sandra Reason. 
Well, I share that passion, and, and I appreciate your ministry's helping me, um, you know, developing that as well. And, you know, I want to talk about thinking, and one of the favorite quotes of mine uh, that I've heard you say is, emotions are what make life delicious, careful thinking is what makes life safe. And what I'd like to do right. first is talk briefly about the first half of that. You know, many people think we apologists uh, unintentionally or intentionally downplay the role of emotions in the Christian walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that's not the case, or at least if, it's, if it shouldn't be the case, what value does emotion have in a thoughtful Christian faith? Well, it isn't that uh, I think that uh, apologists generally downplay them. It's just that they focus on something different. Hmm. The, 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 if you think of apologetics, it's, it's uh, defending the faith. It's giving an answer for the hope that's within you kind of thing. Well, the nature of that task itself is largely left brain. All right? It's a uh, it's people who are uh, who are most comfortable operating on the left side of their brain um, are the ones that seem to gravitate more to this enterprise, and so because that's the case, you're going to see more of that in play with this conversation. Hmm. And I think that, uh, that that people then get the impression that. Well, if you're really smart and careful about your convictions, then this means you don't have any feelings, and feelings are bad, and feelings are a problem, and and uh, and those people don't have them, you know, those those blockheaded apologist types, and I don't want to be like them. And, and that's a, I think that's a misperception, but I understand it because of the activity of the apologist, and you know, some apologists are blockheads, so you know, it's just it's just the way it is. I mean, I don't mean that pejoratively. I sure. mean, you, you guys that, that are just really locked in into a certain way, and they don't care so much about talking about those other things. What, as you know, what stands to reason is we are trying to actually build a certain type of person, and the person is not a blockhead. Yeah. <laughs> the person is an ambassador. So we are, we are using our efforts um, to invest in individual people so that we form a certain type of person, not simply um, transfer a certain capability. And uh, as an ambassador has three different qualities, in our view. Um, an ambassador has a knowledge component. If you think of an ambassador that you're going to send, if you were the president, to send to another country, you'd want them to know something, to know your policies or whatever, what you wanted to communicate to this foreign power. Uh, there is so there's a knowledge component. There is a, uh, a wisdom component. This is the tactical element, how you maneuver in conversation in a diplomatic way. And then there's a character depo- uh, char- uh, quality. It, it's this 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 um, element that that, that of your, the this is the affective element. This is how you come across to people, and how, how you comport yourself. And so what we're looking for in those three qualities, we're looking for knowledge and an accurately informed mind. But we don't stop there. Hmm. We're looking also for for wisdom and artful method, and and also we're looking for character and attractive manner. So the way I look at the follower of Christ engaging the world, I'm looking to see someone developed who has a sharp mind but a warm heart. Yeah, okay? a sharp mind but a warm heart. Now that's the combination. That's the that's the golden combination. Chris. Yeah. It, it, with a lot of people, there's so much focus on the, ment- on the in a sense, the, the in- intellectual side that the heart is gone. The, the, these guys are fighters. They like to go, you know, we're defending the fake, you know. Uh, fix bayonets, uh, ready and fire, <laughs> circle the wagons. And uh, that's sometimes the way they act. Uh, and, and then on the other side, you have people that are on the affective side. They're really emotional. They're really loving. They don't want to ever say anything that would offend anybody. By the way, I, I have to back up and correct myself. I said they're really loving. Um, uh, let me, I'm going to change that to say that they're just stick with this word emotional or they're, they're sentimental. Because mm. I don't think love is, is equal with sentiment. Sure. Uh, and this is part of the problem. Even, even, even our notion of love and our emotions and the way we treat people ought to be uh, informed by proper theology. You know, so sometimes the right thing to do, the loving thing to do to somebody is to is to is to dress them down rather than to make them feel good. But 
Um, and so uh, I think that largely Christianity has, has been, in its recent history, kind of locked into the affective side. So it's, it's about relationship with God and with others. It's about love, and that love is cashed out in very sentimentalistic terms. Um, it's about feelings, and what, what this tends to do is, one, is it creates a very narcissistic, self-centered kind of enterprise. Um, uh, secondly, is it leaves us without proper protection, because as we're following our feelings... Um, it, we can get into big trouble. This is what happened in the 60s. If it feels good, do it, you know. And uh, if, we, if we follow our feelings, it is very easy for us to be manipulated uh, or misled, <clears throat> and, 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 and misled in serious ways theologically. Sure. So, uh, so this is how this, this is the genesis a little bit, Chris, of this slogan that you mentioned, this aphorism, that, um, that feelings make life delicious. Yeah, I think feelings are great. More power to them. I think we should have more feelings and stronger feelings. God gave them to us for a reason, and, and that is to experience something about life. But there is a downside to them. And right now we are we are experiencing more of the downside. Uh, you know, it is not the situation that there's Christians just have way too much information about stuff. Right. They're just too clever on the intellectual side and they don't have enough emotional Engagement. It may be true for some, but those are rare. For the most part, it's the other side of things. Um, it is clear thinking, though, that is the tool that God has given us to make life safe, because it is thoughtfulness and uh, an attention to detail and clarity that uh, allows us to make the kinds of distinctions that that protect us from bad ideas. Yeah. And that allows us to know what is harmful and what is not, even of those things that feel good in the moment. Right. So that that's that's where that, that where that that's that aphorism plays in, and I I like it too. <laughs> I like it too because it really like good aphorisms. It captures a very important point in a succinct and memorable way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, speaking of, uh, bad ideas and theological error, um, you know, there, I think there's a real danger in blindly trusting one's emotions. I want to talk about this briefly. There are movements like the, the Mormon Church, um, where they unabashedly promote this idea of blindly trusting emotions. I remember a year ago, uh, their website had a section entitled, How Can I Know This Is True? And there was a paragraph which read, word for word, feelings from the Holy Ghost are personal revelation to you that confirm the truth of the Book of Mormon. So the question I have for you is, what does the Bible say about the reliability or trustworthiness of feelings and emotions? Yeah, uh, notice that the problem, I just want to underscore something from a quote from uh, LDS there. You said, feelings from the Holy Ghost are whatever, however you... Personal continue. revelation. What does it say? Personal revelation. Well, um, at face value, I'd have to agree with that. Feelings from the Holy Ghost <clears throat> are personal revelation. Right. Here's the kick. How do you know whether they're from the Holy Ghost or not? Yeah, exactly. It, they are presuming that what when you excuse me when you pray that prayer and then you have a positive feeling this is the holy ghost that is giving you confirmation that the book of mormon in this particular case is uh is is the word of god or divinely inspired yeah but that's the very thing that's in question how how do you assess that kind of thing and um i certainly think feelings can be from the holy ghost I think that um, God can use feelings to guide us, although most of the time when he uses feelings to guide us, I do not think that we have to figure out the source of the feelings for those feelings to be an effective source uh, of guidance for God. I think God, in a sense, there he touches our emotions in different ways as a, as a kind of a prod to sovereignly push us in certain directions. We don't even have to know what direction he's pushing us. He knows how to get us going in that direction. Yeah. He pokes us from one side and we move to the other side to try to avoid the pain kind of thing. So um, so I think that there's a sense in which that's true. But if, <clears throat> if what they mean is, and I think the way you put it was good, blindly trusting in emotions, if that's what they mean, 
then and I do think that's what they mean. Yeah. So they lose that phrase. Then then we have a big problem because when a, if a person <clears throat> is it, it is feelings are among the most powerful things <clears throat> to give people unshakable convictions. You can have an emotional attachment regarding something, and it becomes one of the most difficult things to shake a person free from because the emotions have such an effect on moving us. This yeah. is why we have to use them so carefully uh, in, in, in critical enterprises. <clears throat> and we have to be careful when other people are using language to move us and we are not clear on what they're moving us toward. Uh, this is my big concern with rhetoric, especially in politics. You know, when you, you hear, I, I know how language works, I know how rhetoric works, I know how thinking works, and I can see very quickly when somebody's trying to pull the wool over my eyes. And when they do it in a powerful, emotive way that seizes on the emotions, um, and, and, and you're not aware that you're getting tricked, then you are led easily by those emotions, and you have a hard time um, uh, resisting it. Yeah. Okay. So this is why it's 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 this is a very powerful force, and uh, why it's used so much by people, and why it can be so dangerous. And so if if you have uh, an unshakable conviction based on your emotions, but your emotions have led you astray, you have an unshakable fantasy. Yeah. And this is what Mormons have. They have a false idea about God that is secured. Not by good, thoughtful, careful approach using the tool that God has given us to keep us safe, and that tool is our minds. They are wedded to this, this, uh, this doctrine, this, this religious movement, in, in part through this feeling that they are encouraged to have, and their social environment is encouraging, and once they come in, then they're heralded and, and received and encouraged. And, and if you think about the parting, you get, then you get in big trouble. So there are all kinds of emotional mechanisms that are meant to keep one in that group. Yeah. But the question has to be asked, how, how do I know that this is from the Holy Ghost in the first place? And that requires an objective test. I mean, think of it this way. You go back to the, the book of, um, I think, First John. So First John talks about discerning of spirits. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that when we talk, when we talk about testing the spirits, they think that this means that there is some kind of spiritual, um, you know, skill that people have where hmm. they can come into the circumstances and they just kind of get the vibe. <laughs> and they say, I am, I am, I am discerning the spirit and that spirit is a bad spirit and this is a good spirit. And this is the, this is the way they discern spirits. They think it's an a, a subjective thing. Now there are some things that are subjective, but 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 this is what Paul, uh, John is talking about. Notice what John says. But but test the spirits to see if they're from God, and if anyone does not declare that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then he is not of God. Notice what he does. John gives an objective test for testing the spirits. Now, he was probably dealing with a, uh, an early form of Gnosticism there in the late first century, and this is what he was addressing in this, uh, this uh, particular thing, where, where a, group, a, a large group of people were saying that, G, that when, when, when the Word visited the earth, he didn't take on a real body. Right. It only appeared to be a physical body, but it wasn't a real physical body because matter was evil and God or no spirit being like the Word would take that evil matter on his body. And uh, the incarnation is uh, proof against that, and that's what John is claiming. But notice here <clears throat> that when it comes to spiritual tests, what John is offering to test the spirit is an objective test regarding that specific problem. Yes. So God has given us uh, a book full of uh, 66 books, actually, <laughs> uh, that is meant to give an objective test regarding uh, regarding these things, and it, it is and it is not enough for us to assess these things emotionally or have an emotional response, and then just simply assign the divine value to that emotional response as if, yes, yeah, see, this is God right. who's giving me the thumbs up. 
um, without having done the first, the, the in a sense, the objective work, the left brain work that God expects us, us to do to use the resources that he has already given by inspiration of the Spirit to keep us safe, right. to keep us space safe spiritually, emotionally, and uh, and physically. Uh, yeah. and that's all there for that reason. And if we go moving off on our emotions, then um, uh, then we get in trouble. I remember, Chris, when I before I became a Christian, I, I did a lot of hitchhiking in the, uh, in the mid-60s, <laughs> and uh, partly because I was poor and I needed to get around visit my girlfriend who was living in other pines. In any event, uh, I had a couple that picked me up once that was part of the Jesus movement. And, and uh, I was surprised to find out, you know, they were witnessing to me and whatever, uh, I was surprised to find out that they were sexually active. This was a new thing for people then. Now it's just a normal thing, even among Christians, unfortunately. Yeah. But back then, I, you know, this is this was the the new wave of behavior for one. But it, I didn't think the religious folk were climbing on board. Then who were these Jesus freaks that were doing it? And I said, well, how can you justify this? Because I knew my my brother, you know, he wasn't in favor of that. And they said, here's our rule. This is what they know. Whatever we feel brings us closer to Jesus, yeah. then we do that. And whatever we feel brings us away from Jesus, we don't do that. And see, when we sleep together, then we feel closer to Jesus. So there's an okay. <laughs> well, you can, you can see the problem immediately. Yeah. That, that seems in some ways so naive for them to say such a thing. But you will be amazed at how many people today really have that as a an implicit guide for their behavior. And they may not use it necessarily to justify sexual behavior, but they'll use it to justify all kinds of other crazy stuff. True. And goofy theology as well. Yeah. So this is uh, I'm going to I'm going to stand behind my slogan, my aphorism. Yeah. Let's let's try to experience our emotional life to its fullest, um, and the more emotions, the better, as long as they are properly informed. Yeah. And and uh, they are they are they are emotions that are taken captive by the truth, and the truth has to be determined. Um, in most cases. In most cases, the truth is determined by a different process, and that is by by assessing based on the propositional information that we've been given and judging the circumstances, yeah. and then letting our behavior follow according to that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and I'm going to pick your brain in a moment for some uh, specific examples of how we can. Well, think you know, you can't pick my brain. You can't pick my brain unless you're a brain surgeon. But you can pick my mind. <laughs> okay, good point. I'm going to pick your mind in a moment for some specific <laughs> examples of how to think more clearly uh, and biblically. But before I do, I just wanted to uh, to say I think there are a couple of other areas in which thinking is um, trumped. Um, and so, for example, I have in mind uh, certain charismatic circles where it's experience uh, that's trusted over and above thinking. And then you've got movements like Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others where it's the authority of a human institution which is uh, superior or, or, or is, is, has more authority than thinking. Um, do, do you think that there are similar but maybe different dangers of trusting uh, experiences or authorities instead of biblical thinking? Um, well... Uh, I, I certainly think that's true among the charismatic movement, uh, and I was part of that for quite a long time. But uh, so I'm, I'm speaking as from someone who's friendly, you know, not overtly hostile. Although I don't share the theology anymore. So, but and I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that us, uh, that all the so-called sign gifts have, have died in, after the first century. That's not my that's not my view. My either. Um, when it comes to groups like the Roman Catholic Church and um, and the Orthodox and others who make certain authority claims, that's different because uh, they are making, it's in a different category because in the first case with the Charismatics, the authority comes, at least the, the, uh, the authority allegedly comes from God in all of these cases, but it is in the Charismatic movement, it is, it is communicated through the affective uh, um, Means through affective means. So they like I know God is telling me this because I am feeling this kind of thing. Well, it's first person private. There's no other ways to assess this. Uh, essentially, you're saying this is what you are convinced God is doing in your life and saying through you, and it's kind of hard to test that. Um, and many don't try to test it anyway. They figure if it's a powerful experience, it must be from God. Um, 
But when it comes to church, say, let's say the Roman Catholic Church, they are actually making a, an authority claim that is not subjective, but it's objective. I mean, I think there are difficulties with it, but, but I just want to distinguish between these two kinds of claims. Sure. Where the Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, we believe the Bible is the, is, is, is God's word. God is speaking authoritatively through it. But we also think that God is speaking authoritatively through our holy tradition, um, the teaching magisterium of the church, and also through the Pope in a very unique way when he sits in the chair and he makes a pronouncement ex cathedra uh, from the chair, and that that also has the uh, has the weight of divine authority. So um, I don't agree with their authority claim, but I think that their authority claim at least is in a is in a is they are they are making an objective claim based on objective information not based on a subjective appeal. They aren't saying, well, we feel this is true for us, therefore you have to do what we say. Sure. Um, now, that, that at, at least in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, that isn't, and, and arguably the, the, uh, the Orthodox Church, they are trying to make their case objectively that they have, that they sit in the, in the, in the chair of Peter and uh, they are the vicars of Christ for the Church today. Again, I don't think they succeed in that, but I do think it's a different, it's a different kind of claim. I am deeply concerned though, and, and though the charismatic movement has, is, is no longer the charismatic movement. That was, uh, that was late 60s, early 70s, and then, uh, they became in a sense more mainstream. Um, and, but, but during that time, and, and there still are those who, um, who, who just take direct revelation from God, as their main, uh, as, the, as, as, as one of the, the main uh, ways of knowing what to do. Um, I think the way that's influenced the church in general is that it, in the Old Testament, if somebody said, thus saith the Lord, uh, they had to sign their statement in blood. Because yeah. if you speak for God and you speak falsely, you died, or you're supposed to die. Um, it was a capital crime. To make a mistake. Nowadays, people say, "Well, the Lord, well, God said this, and God said that." You hear pastors <laughs> having conversations with God all the time. Yeah. I don't think it, uh, virtually any of this is true. And I could, uh, and I will go to the Scripture, you know, verse for verse with anybody on this issue to demonstrate that what's being practiced now, and, and this is part of the decision making and hearing the voice of God stuff. Uh, what is being practiced now has no kinship to what the, the scripture is teaching about. Uh, but so nowadays you still have this thing where as a, as a, a general daily MO, modus operandi, people are conducting their lives based on what they think God is telling them to do. And they're, and ironically, when they're talking with God and having these conversations, God never seems to tell them, read the book of Romans. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, that, but because they don't, by and large, these Christians know almost nothing about the Bible or about foundational doctrine or theology that is meant to guide their understanding of reality. They know virtually nothing. Um, but they know all these things that God is telling them. So they don't need their Bibles anymore in a functional way. Right. Uh, they need it affectively because they read things that make them feel good about God, and this is what quiet times are about, touching God. And again, I'm not against touching God but they and being touched by God, but... Uh, that isn't what Bible study is when is meant to be. So there is still a big portion of this huge um, in the uh, in the body of Christ now. Um, one one last thought on this, just to give you an, uh, to help people get a clear idea of what I mean, is there are a lot of verses that people claim out of context because it makes them feel good when they read what it says. Um, it, this to me is just another example. Of, uh, of this kind of thing, following emotions rather than following the truth. God has given us the truth, the scripture, propositional knowledge, to help guide our understanding of reality about what he wants and how we're to live. And so there are instructions there, there are promises there and everything, but these have to be, as Paul puts it, cut properly, dividing rightly in Second Timothy chapter 2, dividing rightly the word of God. So I recently uh, received an email from a friend uh, actually, someone in ministry, and on the bottom of the email, you know, people put the have this verse that that is attached to their emails, and hers was Jeremiah 
2911. I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, uh, for prosperity and not for calamity, etc. Well, you're chuckling because I'm sure you heard me talk about this passage. I when it was leading to one, my next question, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, this would be a good segue. Whatever I don't yeah. mention here, you can pick up on and I'll clarify. But, but that passage was a letter written to the exiles, um, in Babylon by Jeremiah. And it's all clear in the passage, Jeremiah 21, 29, 1 write this letter to these people, and then he's telling, God's telling these people. Well, I know some people want to say, yeah, 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 but we're his people too, so this is for us. So they didn't read further, because what it says after Jeremiah 29, 11, is he changes groups. First he's talking to a group of Jews in Babylon, then he talks to the group of Jews in Jerusalem. And he says, oh, and for you, I don't have plans for prosperity and not for calamity. I have plans for calamity and not prosperity. Right. And then he goes on, verse after verse, telling all the dread and all the, all the pain he's going to visit upon them for their disobedience. So it becomes, I think, to the fair-minded reader and to the one who shows respect for God's word. And I'm using these words advisedly. I know somebody's going to be saying, wait a minute, are you saying if I don't agree with you on this particular point, and I'm not fair-minded, and I don't respect God's word, and my response is, that is exactly what I'm saying. You read this passage for yourself, Jeremiah 29, read the whole chapter, and if you take that chapter in context, you will not find any particular promise in there for any Christian. Now, there are things that can be learned from that passage about God that we can benefit from as Christians, but there's no promises to us in there. In fact, the promises to the Christian in the New Testament are just the opposite of the promise That's right. of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that Jeremiah is making that God is making through Jeremiah to the deportees in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity. The promise to Christians is not prosperity, but and 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 it's it's actually persecution. Right. You want a verse? How about uh, go to Matthew ten? Go to First Peter four. Go to 1 Peter 5. Go to 2 Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy. I mean, you go everywhere in the Scripture, and this is repeated time and time again. But you know what? Jeremiah 29.11 makes people feel good when they read it. Yeah. So what they do is they steal somebody else's verse, they abuse it for their own personal feelings, contrary to what it meant there, so that's showing disrespect for God's Scripture. And... And contrary to what the New Testament actually teaches, so it's not just taking a verse out of context, it's doing so in a way to get a message that's the opposite of what the New Testament teaches about us. Right. So this is this has gone south in a, a whole bunch of ways. Some people, by the way, have done this innocently. They've heard other people use it. They've read it themselves. Uh, okay, then I got grace for that. But now you know better. And if you persist, now you're not showing respect for God's word. Yeah. This, in, 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 in situations like that. So, so the point here is, this is just another example of how Christians, they, they, they disregard the issue of truth, that is the meaning of that passage, for example, in order to do something else that makes them feel a certain way that they like. And so they're going to go with the feelings and not with the uh, with the truth. And by the way, when, when, when Christian leaders do this, misuse passages this way, then the rank and file Christians do it too. Yeah. And so the sheep follow the shepherd, and this is when all kinds of mischief happens that brings harm and injury to the body of Christ, because they just simply have not taken the text at its face value. Right. And this is also uh, the most common example of what I was going to ask you for the, the first example of how to think more biblically and clearly. It's it's a it's a practice that you call never read a Bible verse. Um, right. Uh-huh. Can you expand on the meaning of that just a little bit, and then maybe give us some other examples of ways in which we can yeah, improve sure. our thinking? Yeah, sure, Chris. I'm glad you asked. I mean, uh, we just started working into it. You can see that this is really a critical issue from my perspective. Uh, never read a Bible verse. It's another aphorism. It's a it's a truism, if you will, and it's meant to catch you, to to surprise you a little bit. <laughs> the point is here is is that um, if we want to understand what a verse means, we cannot read just the verse and be confident we're getting the meaning right. Yeah, we have to read a paragraph at least, 
Therefore, in the narrative sections, which is most of the Old Testament and the Gospels and the Book of Acts, we have to read maybe even a chapter. Um, because a lot of what's going on uh, in, that, that influences the meaning of one verse is happening above and below it. And just like when you walk into a group of people, or friends, uh, you know, gathering at church or something, and they're making small talk, and you, you catch a phrase that piques your curiosity, and you say, hey, what are you talking about? You ask that question because even though you've heard the phrase, you want to get more because you know you can't understand the, the thing without more information. Yeah. But that's the same question we should be asking when we go back to the text. So um, <clears throat> the concept of never read a Bible verse is that when we go back to passages, particularly when there's a controversy about the passage, that like, you have one view, I have another. Okay, let's expand it a little bit more. Let's go, let's go take a look at it, and let's not just argue, say, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. Let's rather, let's look at the text and look at the flow of thought. And what is the flow of thought that brings us to this verse that might uh, influence the meaning of the passage? And um, this is, by the way, a critical question. When, when I have a dis- difference between on a verse with somebody, well, let's just say in this hearing the voice of God uh, issue, and people say, well, look at the scripture says, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. What can be more clear? You're saying God doesn't talk to us? <laughs> uh, and, and, and Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice? Obviously, they're saying Jesus is right and I'm wrong. So I have a question. First question I ask them, where is that passage? Well, I know where that passage is. Most don't. Mm. It's in John chapter 10. And, uh, and, and so uh, some will say, well, John 10. Okay, well, now I've got a second question. What's going on in John 10? Uh, Jesus is talking about hearing his voice. Well, yes, but you won't know what he means by that phrase unless you know the line of thought. Now, I know what's going on in that passage. Uh, he's having an argument. He has two different arguments with Jewish leaders. Yep. Which Jewish leaders are hearing his voice really well. <laughs> yeah. He is saying, you don't hear my voice. Right. So um, what they miss is verse 6, where it says, this Jesus spoke as a figure of speech. So hearing his voice is a figure of speech, according to the writer. Now, what is a figure of speech of? Well, that's what you have to figure out by looking at the text, but it certainly isn't a figure of speech of itself. Yeah. It's, it's not a figure of hearing his voice. It's a figure... It's a phrase that is meant to describe something else other than hearing voices. Yeah, because we're not so, literally uh, sheep, <laughs> you know. There you go. There you, yeah. Exactly. There you go. So, um, now, people will get that one, obviously, but when it comes to this other phrase, they're so locked into it. So the idea is just to follow train of thought. Let me give you another really good example. Here's a frequent verse that's taken out of context, and it's, people are going to be stunned when I share this, um, and that is, the truth shall set you free. Well, people take that in isolation. You can even see that on the buildings of uh, educational institutions. Truth sets free, or the truth will set you free. Um, well, Jesus didn't say that. Uh, that. That isn't the way he put it. He didn't. He wasn't teaching that truth sets people free. That ah, isn't what yeah. he was teaching. Here's what he said. He said, uh, "This is in John. Uh, is it John eight? Yeah, verse thirty-two. I don't know the exact reference. Yeah, but I do know what's going on." Um, Jesus said, if you abide in my teaching and my teaching abides in you, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So now it's a very specific truth, isn't it? It's the truth that Jesus teaches that you live out that brings freedom. But then after that, he tells us what freedom is. And he says there that, uh, following that, he says, for, uh, for, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit at the, at the exact wording, but, but he starts, he talks about the slave, uh, is in the house, but it's the son of the house that sets the slave free forever, and anybody who commits sin is a slave to sin. Yep. So Jesus is talking about slavery to sin, and being set free from slavery to sin by following his teachings as his disciple. Yeah. 
Now, that's a whole lot different than most people have in mind when they simply cite the verse, the truth shall set you free. That's right. So, uh, and, and it's, and it's the substance of Jesus' teaching that is useful to us, not this misunderstanding of this phrase, the truth shall set, set you free. So there's just another top, another example off the top of my head, uh, of, of the importance of reading, um, reading more than just the verse. The principle never read a Bible verse. Um, and the idea is particularly, it isn't that you can't know the meaning by just reading a verse. Sometimes you get lucky, but you can't be confident of it unless you look all around it and you're studying the passage. And this is part of the problem of quiet times where people are skimming through the Bible waiting for verses to jump out so they get their private messages from God. Um, This is a big problem, too. Yeah, it is. Well, so, in light of everything we've talked about, and, and because we're running out of time, um, I'd like to wrap things up by giving you an opportunity to leave me and my listeners with a with a sort of parting message. What, what, what would you most like us to take away from our discussion today? Well, this is a very good question, Chris. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, no, it really is profound. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And uh, what I would like people to take away with them is a, a deeper respect for the truth of God's Word. Um, early as a Christian, I read a book uh, by Francis Schaeffer that transformed my life. Um, I mean, as I, I was, but I didn't know much, so this laid a foundation and a trajectory. And the book was entitled, uh, He is There and He is Not Silent. Now, there's a lot in this book that doesn't pertain so much to this discussion, but just think about the phrase. He is there, and he is not silent. Another way of putting it is, there is a God. There is a God. We aren't alone in the universe. Um, There is possibility for meaning and purpose. Maybe, Maybe history is going in a direction. God is there, and he's not silent. If God is God, then he's the sovereign. And if he speaks to us then his words are law to us. They are reality. Uh, they are they are what we ought to live by because we are his subjects. And so what this means then is we are under authority. And we can't, and, and our, our, he has given us some tools to understand the way the world is, our senses, our reason, and stuff like this, but he's given us a detailed description of things that we can't learn just by our by sensory awareness or, or just our rational faculties. And that's his word. And so we study his word to learn about reality. And if we don't study, we, we don't, if we don't read it properly, we get reality wrong. Yeah. And so this is not a frivolous enterprise. Uh, my concern is that people be careful when they read and, um, and they be careful with what they believe. Because how, what makes them so confident that they're just not in the, going down the wrong path as the, the LDS, uh, burning with feelings from the Holy Ghost, or so they think. Uh, it can only be their assessment, proper assessment of the truth, and this is why God gave us those 66 books to help us to do that. So I would like to leave people with a sober, uh, sense of taking truth seriously and trying to live by it. And that truth is found among other places, the truth of reality is found most importantly in the book that the God who is has given to us so that we might know him, his ways, and aspects of this world that we can't discover on our own. And those are the most important things. Yeah, absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. So as I let you go, how can my listeners get plugged in to stand a reason and avail themselves of the various resources you make available? Well, the first thing to do is go to our website, and that's uh, very easy to find. Stand to Reason's acronym is STR. So the website is str.org, str.org. Uh, real simple. And uh, they'll find a 1,000 pages worth of content there. <laughs> Once you get there, it's kind of like a smorgasbord, you know, 1,000 pages of content. All our radio shows are there. I mean, they go back a couple of years, I think, now, but uh, I mean, lots there, three hours a week of open call-in radio. Our own blog is there, uh, so uh, we have a, our God blog. A lot of Christians find that as a daily watering hole because things are posted there every day by our blogging team, not me, but Melinda and Amy Hall and 
<clears throat> our other speakers, Alan Sleeman, Brett Kunkel, and others make contributions there. So it's part of our team, but it's good stuff and high quality. And uh, we also have our products that are there and, and the like. So it, it, we would encourage people to sign up then. You have to register on the website if you want to get all of the information, and it doesn't cost anything. It's, it's simple. But um, a lot of good stuff is behind the registration, and uh, we encourage people to sign up for Solid Ground, which is our bi-monthly newsletter. When you sign up for Solid Ground, you'll not only get Solid Ground, but you'll get a bi-monthly mentoring letter from me as well. That's alternate months. So every month you'll get something from us. And you can also get this, uh, you know, we send it virtual with links and stuff like that. So there's two different ways to get it. But this kind of gets you into the bloodstream of Stand to Reason, our website, and receiving that material. And then I hope that people just get a good infection from us, you know, <laughs> like apparently you have, Chris, and uh, start getting a picture of what it's like, uh, what clear thinking Christianity looks like, uh, what it looks like to begin developing as a good ambassador for Christ in the area of knowledge, wisdom, and character. Great. Yeah, I definitely recommend those resources to my listeners, and I just want to thank you again for your time today. Chris, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for what you're doing. So there you have it. I hope that you enjoyed the interview as much as I did giving it. I very highly recommend Stand to Reason uh, and the resources it makes available. You can check those out at str.org, as Greg had mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, give a listen to his show as well on Sundays and call in with a question if you have something that you want some help with or maybe even better yet, if you want to challenge him on something uh, and put, put a stone in his shoe, um, as I've tried to do in a couple of cases. So, yeah, I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. I should be interviewing Steve Ham from Answers in Genesis to talk about creation and the authority of Scripture, which is an interview that I'm excited to give and one I'm um, amazed I was able to secure. So I hope you'll join me for that, and uh, until then...